Welcome back to the London Futurist podcast. We're only a few weeks into 2023, but I can already report a change in the attitudes of many business people regarding the future. Previously, businesses expressed occasional interest in possible disruptive scenarios, but their attention often quickly turned back to the apparently more pressing tasks of business as usual. But recent news of changes in AI capabilities, along with possible social transformations due to pandemics, geopolitics and industrial unrest, is leading more and more business people to wonder, how can they become more effective in anticipating and managing potential significant changes in their business landscape? In this context, the new book by our guest in this episode, Nicholas Badminton, is particularly timely. It's called Facing Our Futures, How Foresight, Futures Design and Strategy Creates Prosperity and Growth. Over the last few years, Nicholas has worked with over 300 organizations, including Google, Microsoft, NASA, the United Nations, American Express and Rolls-Royce, and he advised Robert Downey Jr.'s team for the Age of AI documentary series. Nicholas, welcome to London Futurist Podcast. It's really great to be here, David. Great to have you with us, Nicholas. Hi, Callum. Nicholas, what led you into the career of being a futurist? It's really interesting, actually. I tell this story when I do keynotes and I engage with clients for the first time. It started off really young, at the age of eight, and you, you might remember this as well. The Osborne Book of the Future came out in the 70s. And it was a book about living in the world of the year 2000 and beyond. Wearable computing, probably the most prescient thing that it spoke about, but living on the moon, living under the ocean, uh, living in fully automated lives, a whole bunch of different medical procedures, robots everywhere. And it kind of just really ignited a bit of curiosity, mixed that with some science fiction and wonder, and me starting to use a computer for the first time fairly early on, around about the age of eight then it really sort of primed me to think about our future. So I went to university after doing some college courses in computing, and I was quite a gifted computer programmer at the time. But I did a degree at Bournemouth University called Applied Psychology and Computing, and it allowed us to go into cognitive psychology, computing theory, early days of the internet. We're talking like 93, 94, 95. So, you know, green screens and then like those first creative expressions and start to look at what might happen culturally. But then also starting to look at the world of artificial intelligence. I actually did my dissertation on uh, language, artificial intelligence, and uh, whether grammar truly exists. So it's kind of pressing in a way. We're now struggling and wrangling with generative AI and what's happening in chat GPT and other systems as well. I spent my whole career in data and doing predictive systems, behavioral targeting in advertising prior to the social media age. And when I moved to Canada in 2008, I stepped up and started to get really interested in the deeper areas of like innovation and design. And that led me into futures. Ten years ago, I ran a conference called CyberCamp YVR with Amber Case down in Portland and Caris O'Connell as well. That had tons of people in the room that were really interested about the future of humanity and technology. Now, no one was calling me a futurist. That wasn't really a term that was being used a lot back then. And then suddenly a friend introduced me to a room full of people as a futurist. At that time, I was really into transhumanism. I've got a microchip in my left hand. 
Emil Grafstras from Dangerous Things put that in my hand at a conference. I was talking about psychedelics and shamanic journeying and the application of that in business. That got me into some hot water with people I was working with as well. Body modding and all that. It was interesting, David. I actually spoke at London Futurists a few summers ago, probably about seven or eight summers ago, actually. I was working at freelancer.com. I think the keynote was called Everything is Going to Be Okay or Everything's Going to Be All Right. And about a month later, I quit and went to be a futurist full time because it was sort of a jumping off point. So I thank you for that experience back there because London Futurist was part of that decision to go full tilt. Let's do this. And now I run futurist.com and the think tank there. I worked with incredible companies. I continue to do so. Writing the book and working with the community that I work with is sort of my life's calling in a way. So you have plenty of positive things you've said there. We talked about the wonder of the future. But more recently, you've been involved in something called Dark Futures, yeah, which sounds a bit frightening. A few years ago in Vancouver, I sat down having a beer with three of my incredibly smart friends, everything from like researchers to computer programmers and other futurists as well, a good friend of mine. And we started talking about the weird things that were happening in the world, the hidden systems, not only societally, but economically, behaviorally and whatever. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to run an event. I think I'm going to call it Dark Futures. Is this conspiracy thinking? No, it's not conspiracy thinking at all. What this is, is it's an expose and a discussion about the hidden systems in the world. So it's a reality check, but definitely, definitely not conspiracy in any way, shape or form. Everything from dark systems targeting on artificial intelligence, the idea that people in other countries like China and Russia were using places like Vancouver as a hedge city to dump their money into real estate and the, the knock-on effects of that. Over the years, I've had about 40, 45 different people come and do these presentations. 15 minutes presentations on everything from cities to waste to artificial intelligence to blockchain and cryptocurrency and whatever. Just to really take an alternative view and say, you know, this is what might happen if we take the wrong path forward. Some people have said that it's like the black mirror of TED Talks. And I expanded out to San Francisco and Toronto, Vancouver. I was just about to go to New York and London as well. And then the pandemic hit. But that primed a whole bunch of thinking about how people were ignoring how bad things could be in the light of just saying, hey, everything's going to be great and positive and optimistic. And I think that there's two sides of the story that we need to tell. That's interesting, because I find most people are fairly negative about technology. Hmm. I'm always surprised by how much tech lash there is. So what's the most pervasive and all-encompassing of the dark futures that you've had people talk about? I had a great friend called Jordan Peter. He's doing his PhD now in computing and ethics and a whole number of different things. He did a talk on eschatology, the study of the end times from a religious perspective and how through history, through thousands of years, we've always expected there to be an end of days. It's interesting how that sort of grounds us. There's a bunch of stuff I researched for the book that never quite made it, like looking at Greek tragedy and the catharsis that came from watching suffering in the theater and what that gave back to society in a positive way as well. Do you think we are heading towards an end times? It's futurist. We tend to think we're either hitting the limits of what we're capable of, we're either going to transform out of that, or we're in collapse and decline. I like to think that we're in a constant state of collapse and we're trying to work out how to keep everything alive in the world, infrastructure and people, places and whatever. 
humans are incredibly resilient. There's a lot of discussions about how climate is going to cause a whole number of catastrophes. And whilst it might happen in certain regards, it is generally overblown. How capitalism is killing a lot of free thinking and free ideas, how communism is doing the same thing and whatever. But is there an end point that we're all careering towards? I think that we're underestimating the resiliency of humans to survive. Sure, there's existential crises of nuclear war and whatever that sort of hangs over our head and have been hanging over our heads for decades. But really, outside of that, I think that we've got an incredible amount of hope. But I actually could talk about futurists being hope engineers. So that's what we do. I'm, I'm wildly optimistic. I'm a hope engineer. Still, after doing keynotes and work, my clients are saying, I thought you were going to be more optimistic. People are afraid to be real about the challenges that we've got. And once we're real and we can frame that, we can actually do something about that. So that's what I'm finding in the world, that people are kind of being nihilistic in a way, or they're just ignoring the challenges that are here. The subtitle of your book talks about prosperity and growth. Mm. What's your view on the quite widespread view that we have to go into an anti-growth phase that we've already living with enough? We should expect to cut back rather than to flourish further. Yeah, degrowth is super interesting. I chat with a number of my friends about this. A member of the think tank, Bronwyn Williams, I think you've chatted to her before, chats to me about degrowth. If you think about what degrowth is, it's got some really smart thinking, you know, shrinking rather than growing economies, being more resilient, being more sustainable, living a life that's, you've got more humility, you need less things and whatever. I love this. What I think is useful about the idea of degrowth or no growth is the fact that it's entirely imaginary. And because it's entirely imaginary, in futures work, that's incredibly useful. It's like Jack Fresco in The Venus Project, or Elon Musk saying that we're going to go and live on Mars, or even discuss Saudi building the line, a 172-kilometer oasis where billionaires are literally going to go and hide from the world's problems. These are ideas that challenge what we think the world is going to be today. And once we've got these reference points, signals, and that indicate trends, we can start to look at scenarios, start to tell stories, and start to really plumb the depths of possibilities in our futures. That's how I see degrowth, because I don't think at any time soon we're going to suddenly get to what I call a Star Trek future. Everyone works for the Academy. No one's hungry. Everyone lives in a prosperous life in these white outfits, and suddenly equality is incredible. I think that we're born of struggle and we're born of war and taxes. I think that these are deeply rooted societal structures and challenges that are not going to disappear very quickly. I think degrowth and all these ideas are absolutely fantastic. I'm really excited about things like regeneration and restoration and growth. So I'm excited about working out how we can take what we've got today and make it better, getting off of fossil fuels, building water resiliency, building food resiliency in the context of megacities. I'm excited about the circular economy, reduce, reuse, and recycle, working out how we disrupt that culture of waste that we've got that's been ignited by the Industrial Revolution. You say we are born of struggle. It's a fundamental aspect of our lives, and there's always wars and there's always taxes. Yeah. But isn't it possible that we might have less struggle of the sort that is so soul-crushing and despairing? After all, throughout history, women had to put up with endless childbirth and often early deaths, 
but thanks to technologies, thanks to birth control, thanks to education, thanks to general more abundance, a lot of that struggle has been changed and it's a different kind of life. We have medicine which has freed us from the tyranny of many infectious diseases, not completely. So do you think it's at least possible that we will have a world in which there are struggles and stresses that we are happy with rather than the struggles and stresses which overwhelm too many people and leave many people in despair and indeed kill people at an early age? I think it was Steven Pinker that did very famous talk on, you know, how the world is better than it's ever been and child mortality and whatever. Actually, it's really interesting. Recently, I was speaking about black swans to a conference and I talk about Alexander Fleming and his discovery of penicillin being a black swan. He was basically a clumsy lab technician that went on vacation, came back, and penicillin was growing in one of his Petri dishes. At that time, the average age that men would die in the UK was, I think, 47. So yes, the world has got better. We've got to be careful that we don't fall into the whole abundance mindset dialogue that happens with people like Peter Diamandis and whatever that suddenly says everything's going to be fantastic, everything's going to be much, much better. Because the world that they talk about is a pay-to-play situation. We've still got a huge amount of the world that's under a calorific deficit. We've still got a lot of wars and civil disobedience happening around the world. There's different challenges coming from Krink, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. These tensions and struggle are there. We've gotten very good at tuning out a lot of that noise so we can live normal, healthy, happy lives. But yeah, I think the pay-to-play society that we live in is making the world a really tough place. So for me to start thinking that the world is getting truly better in so many ways, I think that there's something around open medicine. Ideas like open insulin, which is a huge problem in the world, that some of these companies just own the patent on insulin and all these people are paying potentially hundreds of dollars a month for access to that in some countries. The idea of open science, the idea of equality around wealth, And I'm not talking about crypto and decentralization. I'm talking about true equality, places for people to live, cities that are actually built for humans and not vehicles and a number of things. And this is what I talk about. And this is what I get excited about. And I think it surprises some of my clients that I get down to some of these brass tacks, fundamental things in the world. It's also very difficult to solve some of these problems as well. This is what seems to me pernicious about the no growth movement. It's all very well if you're a comfortably middle class person in the developed world. But if you're one of the world's one billion who are in really bad poverty or another couple of billion who are low rising middle class in the developing world, it doesn't look so rosy. Maybe we can all get to a society of abundance. I would hope we can because probably almost all the alternatives are pretty bad. I do agree with you that it's not a trajectory that we're necessarily on. We don't know. And it's not a necessarily done deal. And Peter Diamandis and people like him do seem to think it is almost inevitable. And of course, in a sense, they might be right. But it seems to me that they might also very much be wrong and we need to work towards it. But when you're doing consulting work for your clients, what are you doing for them? Are you doing scenario development or are you doing coaching work? What's the nature of the consulting? A lot of the new consulting that I do sprang out over the last three years. I obviously spent most of my life working management consultancy and technology strategy and business strategy as well. And I was predominantly speaking and running events pre-pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, I reached out to a a very large tech company I was working with, one of the largest tech companies in the world with about 180,000 global employees. 
And we'd done some work. And that original piece of work was, here are the signals, here are the trends, here are some scenarios that are going to play out. This is how it reflects off of the objectives that you have and how those objectives can be extended with horizons of 10, 20, even 30 plus years. And the kinds of things that you need to consider today as part of your strategic planning. That's the majority of the work. The company I worked with, we ended up looking at everything from geopolitics around population growth, geopolitical shifts around economics and energy and a number of different things, all the way down to gun ownership and private militia and gun crime in the United States. So what we do is we choose areas of exploration and we go deep. And typically I work with a futurist in residence or a burgeoning futurist in residence in these companies that are really on top of this. And I work with them as partners. And then we take that into the company. And oftentimes we then extend that into building out workshops, writing design fiction to try and make that come alive. I've worked with big tech companies, small startups. I'm working with a very large French globally minded engineering company right now. It's sort of that broad range, but it's like, what's happening? Where's that going to take us? Really, where's that going to take us from a scenario planning perspective, the peoples, the places, the context, the dynamics, and then like exploring those stories. So it's quite a broad remit of what we do. And because I've got the Futurist Think Tank, we've got three or four people that can suddenly work together on white papers or research and whatever and start to do some really interesting work. In the last three years, it's become at least 60% of our work now versus me just traveling and speaking and doing media, for example. It's really interesting work. It's being constantly curious, but then helping clients being constantly curious as well. And that kind of woken some companies up to make much better decisions today. What are the examples of the better decisions some of these companies are taking? At the beginning of the pandemic, I worked with this tech company and we realized that out of that huge employee base, there was a lot of people that were living on their own and moving into a hybridized state of work or complete remote was going to have potential effects. Everything from alcohol abuse and drug usage, mental depression, deterioration of mental health. And I'd done some research with my friend Nick Black from Intentions around that and we were finding that the world was more stressed, depressed and narcissistic than ever before, pre-pandemic. We're actually going to re-baseline that this year. So it's going to be interesting to see how much worse it's got. But the client took that and actually made some internal policy decisions around providing support specifically to those people that were going to be at risk. And I think that that's actually helped thousands of people become more resilient as well. And that's just one particular context. Some other things that I've done with clients is to be able to work out the context of using different forms of logistics and transportation in the ever-changing landscape of North America. And we identified new markets to operate in. I worked with another client to look at the potentiality of building incredible business in Africa. So there's lots of really cool stuff that we're doing, and it's very exciting to do the work. I can imagine there are people listening who will say, this sounds like a great career to get into. Yeah. What should they do? How do they become a futurist or something similar? Well, when I graduated university in 1996, I sort of started my journey to get to today, and it's been a lot of hard work. You can actually go to university and do degrees and PhDs, master's courses in Foresight today. It's a lot easier. I'm actually going to be doing a course for Schulich School of Business here in Canada. It's the number one business school in Canada, just to help prime executives. So you've got access to that. 
And I think like even 10 years ago, that wasn't readily available or it wasn't really being promoted in the same way as it is today. It's like if you want to be a strategist, but you're a developer today or you're working in business analysis, you just have to go out and get a broad world experience. Prior to jumping off and doing the business that I do today, I had something like 16 different jobs. I was always experimenting and working for myself, side hustles, running events. That's what it takes to get into this game. Travel the world, get the experience, because there's no point in just reading a bunch of textbooks and suddenly being in a room and prognosticating on whatever cool technology is happening today. Unfortunately, in the world of futurism, there's a lot of people that are sort of pop futurists and run around and say outlandish things, and they make our jobs a little bit more tough. David and I have a word for that. We call it future porn. I sort of hold my head in my hands when I hear these people, and it's like, this is not useful. And actually, it doesn't make you sound very smart. But everyone's calling themselves a futurist today. And do you know what? I actually really love that. The fact that people are suddenly starting to get really super stoked and excited about what's coming next. And maybe this future pornography is a jump-off point. Good. I was watching a bunch of speakers 10 years ago that I thought were really, really cool. And I'm not going to name names, but some of them I thought were really great 10 years ago. And they've sort of devolved into something that's a little bit too sensationalistic today. I sort of started off in that world. And now I'm super serious at the work and trying to do. In the book, the book is very simply an introduction and a signpost to like dozens of people that do really good thinking around futures work. And that's what I really tried to do within those pages. It would certainly be a good thing if more people around the world took an active interest in the changes that are coming because change has never been so fast and it will never again be so slow. We are heading into really quite amazing transformations. It's quite worrying if we sleepwalk into them, that most people are unaware they're coming. People are going to get a shock. And when they finally realize that things are starting to change very dramatically, they could panic. Personally, I think that's probably the biggest danger in our future. If you're a developer now, if you're a coder now and you want to become a strategist, I guess you go and do an MBA and then you go and work for McKinsey or something. There isn't a career path like that for futurists, although it's encouraging to hear you say there are more futurists cropping up. Let's hope that's true. Do you think most large organizations now have a futurist? No. It's very concerning still. It's interesting. So in this large tech company, my friend became futurist in residence in one small part of the organization. It's interesting. There's a study back in 2018 published by uh, Rohrbeck and Kuhn, a guy called Rennie Rohrbeck. I think he's in Belgium. Really great guy to seek out and follow. He does great research, does great teachings about futures work. He did a study where over eight years, he looked at a number of different companies and worked out how they applied futures thinking or not in their organization. He actually found out that organizations that did actually embed it within their organizations were actually more profitable and had a higher rate of growth, like a 2x growth over their competition, the people that weren't doing this. I tend to talk like this with clients now, which is, whatever you do today will shape our futures. Now, do you want to sit back and ignore that work and be a passive part of that whole trajectory forward? Or do you want to be an active part of that? Do futures work, have bigger visions, do better strategic planning, understand where you're going to be in 20, 30, 50, even 100 years time. Even if it's speculatively, you're going to actually have an active part in the shaping of our futures. And I tell you what, it makes CEOs incredibly uncomfortable and it really jolts them into action. And even if it's just changing a little bit of a mindset when they sit down to do strategic planning 
of asking what if the world changes, that can actually result in saving millions of dollars in decision making. Let me give you an example. A couple of years ago, I was working with a large frozen food company in Europe. We were looking at research and obviously I was looking at climate. It was an important part of this. And Politico had an incredibly interesting study into climate, what was going to happen over the next sort of 50 or so years. They actually said that southern Europe was going to have somewhat of a calamity in terms of heat waves in southern Spain, southern Italy, whereas northern Europe was going to have something that they were calling an apocalypse windfall. So people in northern Europe would be able to grow the food that was grown in southern Europe. They were going to make all the money, southern Europe, economic changes, whatever. How long ago was this forecast? This was an article in Politico. I think it was last year. Oh, okay, quite recent. If you just type in Google, like, apocalypse windfall Politico, you will find the article. And I kind of love that phrase in a way. Anyway, my client was based in northern Europe. I was just doing a pre-briefing with the CEO, and she was incredibly interested. And she was like, we're going to fly to Spain, to Valencia tomorrow, to make a significant investment in a particular bunch of operations. And what you're saying is that over the next 30 to 50 years, based on this data, that's going to be a very challenging time. And they went back to the boardroom and they changed their strategic framing of the opportunity. That's futures work. That's really useful futures work. Poor southern Spain. I spent a lot of time in Andalusia. That's a sad thought that northern Europeans are saying we're not going to invest down there because it's going to boil. It's not, they're not going to invest. They're going to invest in a way that's going to be able to be resilient in that environment. More resilient, yeah. So it's not about not doing things. It's about working out how to be part of that. The same Politico story also talked about the cultural disaster that is Italy not being able to grow tomatoes anymore. It's a cultural catastrophe as much as it is an agricultural catastrophe as well because of the culture that's been built. There were stories of farmers at the bottom of Mount Etna that could no longer grow the food that they used to, like grapes and whatever. And they were turning to growing, I think, olives and artichokes and things like that that were a bit more resilient in terms of drought and higher levels of heat. These are the things that really get me excited as a futurist to follow and to advise on because this resiliency is going to come from being very real about what could come next. And hey, do you know what? If things turn and change and weather and climate is very, very tricky to discuss with anyone, then that's good. But if it gets worse than what we're expecting and we're not ready, then it can be pretty calamitous. Your advice earlier for somebody to become a futurist included traveling the world, get involved in multiple things. You even said there's no point reading a bunch of textbooks unless they have these other aspects as well. Yeah. But I guess you do want people to read the book that you've just created. Sure. Facing Our Futures. Are there any key messages in that book? Anything you feel is particularly important that we haven't been able to cover in this conversation so far? The key messages are to be curious and shift your mindset from what is to what if. What if the world was going to change? Just even questioning that at a simple level within your organization is really useful. The book has actually got a positive dystopian framework in it that helps us look across two different pathways to our futures by setting different kinds of principles at the beginning. We have to consider how bad decisions today could result in bad situations in our futures. We're caught in a societal complex where we're afraid of bad news. Brexit is a great example. Let's not think about how bad it could be. And I remember in the UK when people were starting to say, well, here's everything that could go wrong. And all the people in the Let's Leave Europe camp are like, no, we can't, we can't be negative. 
Well, we need to be negative. We need to be negative. We need to understand this trajectory. We need to understand how bad it could get if poor decisions are made. Because history has told us that poor decisions have been made over time. I mean, we're 300 years deep in an industrial complex and climate change is real and there's still pollution and oil majors are making more money than ever. So what do you do when you've made a really bad decision? What should the UK do? Now that it's gradually waking up to the fact that it has made a really bad decision, what should the UK do? Is it just waking up now to that? The majority is. Obviously, I'm British. I moved to Canada in 2008 when there was a recession, and I moved to Canada for a number of different reasons. I just knew that the UK was on a trajectory to be like it is today, and it's really, really challenging. It was also a place that was difficult to build the businesses that I wanted to build in North America. It was a lot more hopeful. It's it's a younger territory, let's be honest about it. What can you do once you make bad decisions? Learn from the lessons, be incredibly honest, be courageous and brave in saying that we've done things that are wrong. We need to make very tough decisions. I guess in the case of Brexit, ask for forgiveness in a lot of different places, right? Do I think that the UK should wander back into Europe? I don't think it's that simple. I do think that people underestimated how bad it was going to be. And do you know what? Doing some futures work prior to the whole discussion of Brexit David Cameron would have sat down in a room full of futures folks for a week. You could have seen absolutely everything that's played out. I absolutely guarantee it. Just in speculative scenarios. Would he have decided to go ahead? Well, David Cameron being an ostrich is kind of an interesting metaphor. One other thing in your book, maybe we can end on this, is you dedicate it to your partner and to your son, Maximilian, I think. Yeah. So what are your hopes for the future of Maximilian? So I'm 50 years old. I was never going to have kids. And about five years ago, I was sat down with a great friend of mine. We'd grown up together. He left school and didn't want to go to college and ended up being a musician, ended up being very senior in a lot of big tech companies advising the top tier. I was down there in Silicon Valley. And I was like, why did you have kids? Because... It didn't seem like that was going to be your trajectory because you're out there in the world having all this fun and doing whatever. And he said something quite poignant. And he's a designer and a futurist and really trying to build uh, something around resiliency in new ways. And he was saying, who's going to save the world? It really hit me. And it became quite poignant to me that we can choose not to have children and that's incredibly valid. But at the same time, if we do really hard work to get us uh, progressing forward and we've got no one that's at least going to pay attention to that and maybe take it forward then that's a real shame i'm kind of hoping my son's going to take an interest in this he doesn't have to do this for a job but certainly to be somewhat of a crusader for honesty and good and curiosity and creating resilient futures because that's the only way that we're going to make the world a better place i come back to an old iroquois uh, north american indigenous nation the iroquois nation to think about resiliency and long-term thinking The Iroquois, a couple of hundred years ago, started thinking about seventh generation thinking, so about 500, 550 years into the future. Everything you do today is going to ring through time for the next 500 plus years. So choose carefully what you're going to do today. And me becoming a father has just given me a perspective around long-termism that's more real and visceral than ever before. So my hope is that Maximilian and his friends step up and really fight the crumbling complex that we find in the world. 
Everything we do today has consequences in the future. We shouldn't just be thinking about the consequences today. We might do things that are pleasant and reassuring in the short term, but we'll regret unless we have thought ahead, as you are advocating, Nicholas. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to share with us. We'll point people to your book in the write-up of this episode. And we encourage everybody as well who likes this episode to give it a five-star rating and to tell your friends about London Futurist Podcast. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, David. Thank you, Callum. Thanks a lot, Nicholas.